0: Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's November 18th, 2015. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. Today you'll hear a live conversation with director Todd Haynes, whose new film Carol opens this weekend. The discussion comes from one of our free HBO director's dialogues during the 53rd New York Film Festival, where Carol played in the main slate. On the occasion of the film's theatrical release, we're presenting a full retrospective of Haynes's vivid and subversive body of work. The director has also chosen a slate of films to pair with his own, and will be in-person at five screenings throughout the series. Carol stars Kate Blanchett as a married socialite in 1950s Manhattan, who has an intense relationship with the much younger Therese, played by Rooney Mara. The film was a smash hit at Cannes, where it competed for the Palme d'Or and won the Best Actress Prize for Mara's understated performance. It was also an audience and critical favorite at NYFF, where Scout Tafoya wrote for RogerEbert.com, I fell head over heels in love with Carol. And Time Out New York wrote, Forget the Oscars, Carol might just be the best film of the decade. During the New York Film Festival earlier this fall, Todd Haynes joined festival director Kent Jones to talk about adapting the book by Patricia Highsmith, the influence of Douglas Sirk on his work, the many faces of Bob Dylan, and much more. Let's go now to that conversation.
1: this is Allison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theatre is turning 25 next year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theatre even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org wrt25.
2: Here's that water you were wondering about. Awesome,
3: thank you. Beautiful.
2: Um, Todd, I want to um, jump in uh, by um, uh, with talking about a specific aspect of Carol um, in relation to Far From Heaven. Um, I Far From Heaven is uh, among many other things a really intense dialogue with Douglas Sirk. Um, Carol is something very, very different. And I remember at the time when you were preparing Mildred Pierce, forgive me for the... <laughs> but when you when you were um, th- thinking about research for Mildred Pierce, you were looking at, uh, I think, photographs of the era very specifically and also work about the era that's depicted um, that was done later in the 70s, right? Yes. The, yeah. Know. And it, it just... I just kind of want to start the ball rolling there by talking about maybe possibly a shift in the way that you're um, looking at uh, the work of a different era. Because um, in Carol, one isn't thinking about references to films. That's that's not really present in the movie. It's something very different.
3: Yeah, um, I, I did I did look at a lot of films yeah. for Carol, but they and I and I started by as I often do by looking at films from the era that the story is set in and but it 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 was very very quickly I knew that it that wasn't particularly relevant to this and I didn't wasn't interested in sort of repeating the the Serkian and you know um, studio system kind of filter on the on the style of the film and uh, I think also one of the very first films I thought of when I read the adaptation the first draft of the script and the um, novel was a brief encounter. And I just started to think of great mm-hmm. love stories on film and how... And, and I thought, oh, wow, this is something I haven't particularly approached mm-hmm. as a discipline, as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I always sort of want to give myself some kind of an assignment, you know, something that I feel I can learn from each time. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, 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 it all started t- to make sense because, um, well, the novel... The price of salt is entirely rooted in the point of view of Therese, yeah. the character that Rooney Mara plays in the film, and like most Patricia Highsmith novels that I've read, it, they're all locked inside a single mental state, even if they're written third person. And this was no different, and drew very interesting parallels to that in tendency of hers. But I, but it just made me think about point of view. It made me think about because as soon as I read the first draft of Phyllis's script, it opened it up, yeah. and we all of a sudden had access to Carol freely um, that we didn't have in the book, and it made me. Wa- I, I just wanted to really um, be very conscious of how we enter Carol's wor- Carol's world initially, what that means, but that we but trying to really structure the whole film around a point of view. And that the great, the best love stories on film are rooted in the point of view of the more woundable, vulnerable party, Mm -hmm. the more amorous party. And in this case, that's mostly Therese through the story. But what's so interesting about the story, this really isn't reflected in the the subjectivity of the novel, is that that changes in the course of the story. Yeah. And, and so that great, for people who know Brief Encounter, it begins in that um, refreshment stand in the train station. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of sor- introduced to secondary characters in the story. And then in the background, you see two people having a conversation. You're like, oh, that's Celia Johnson and mm-hmm. Trevor Howard. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, they look like extras in their own yep. film. Yep. And then a loud mouth gossip friend says, Laura, mm-hmm. and interrupts the conversation. You realize an important conversation has been interrupted. But what's so interesting about that is immediately you're questioning, whose story is this? Right. And you start to get deeper into her story, her point of view, her narration that she conveys to her husband when she goes back home. And this brief encounter, this, which is ending that day, mm-hmm. is retold in sort of real time in the film. And so, it's so, so I thought, oh wow, that's such a beautiful structuring device. Because then you travel th- through the entirety of the, f- the narrative to explain what that conversation was about, what we missed. Right. And, and then it, you replay it at the end of the film, and of course we know the importance of it and what that interruption meant. But in Carol, by the time we come back, because I kind of lifted that right out of Brief encounter and put it into our script. Um, by the time you come back to the hotel scene at the beginning of Carol, yes. they've shi- they've shifted their statuses in the relationship. And Therese, who was this young, uh, vulnerable, uh, f- you know, subject, very much information before our eyes, mm. who fell in love with Carol, Kate Blanchett. Um, and was hurt, mm-hmm. and developed uh, defenses, and protections, mm-hmm. and limits, and has changed the way she looked, and has grown up, and all of a sudden, Carol has surrendered a lot, sacrificed a lot in her life, mm-hmm. reevaluated the meaning and the value of this very special girl that she met, mm-hmm. and has, is now coming back to without spoiling. <laughs> movie. Um, yeah. yeah, is, yeah, is there
2: anybody here who hasn't seen the movie? Oh yikes! Okay. Oh,
3: damn. <laughs> oh well. That's sort of inevitable, I think, yep. right? For an hour-long talk about. <laughs> but, um, but, it was about shifting points of view and yeah. about aligning yourself with the person who is more um, in, in peril, basically, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. love.
2: But then it's finding. It's, it strikes me that it's it's finding a common ground of. Common vulnerability, um, the you know coming back to it and exactly, that the, yeah.
3: and that love relationships do shift. Yeah, you know, and we so we so we hear, yeah. we, so yeah. and we because we only remember when we're in peril. Yeah, that's the part that's we remember. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we forget the other side. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, uh, the so it was really about love stories that were rooted in this the one of the subjects yeah. uh, sides that that. That I looked at a lot and, and gleaned from a lot, mm. and and then yeah, I, I um. I, w- I you know I think the visual language of the film was just you know increasingly uh, informed by uh, the historical research that we were doing, yeah. and what New York City looked like in the early nineteen fifties, how incredibly different. A, a world it was than Mm -hmm. what we think of as the 50s the Eisenhower 50s which we fully um, explored in Far From Heaven it's so funny how how often because I remember doing Far From Heaven and having you know the Doing research of the period, Hartford, mm-hmm. Connecticut, 1957, and people saying there's a great there's a big Italian population in Hartford. When we're looking for extras, you might want to consider Italian-looking extras or mm-hmm. And I was like, no, we want everybody to look like patrician, Hollywood, backlot extras, mm-hmm. like kind of robots. Yes. You know, nothing remotely connected to the real Hartford, Connecticut, in 1957. Right. But so many people would see Far From Heaven and go. I remember the 50s. It was exactly like that. That was like my <laughs> experience. And you're like, "Wow! Is it movies that yeah. change yeah. the way we think, yeah. or yeah. is it something about the 50s yeah. and Eisenhower 50s in particular that does that?" <laughs> <clears throat>
2: yeah, there's a there's a, a, um, a piece by Manny Farber where he's talking about the, the how the directors of the 70s were informed by growing up in the 50s, and he said, "Yeah, it was a great era. The big color was charcoal gray." You right. know. Um <laughs> uh and, and and it's interesting something that came up last night, uh, in the discussion after the film, which is that the awareness that this is still the post war era. Yeah. And that the trauma um and the cataclysm of war is carried yeah. um in the com- in the people, in the way that they yeah. that they move and the way that they relate to one another. Yeah,
3: it looks like a it really looks like a, a post war city, New York yeah. City. <laughs> It looks distressed, it looks dirty. uh, Also, the color process of color photography Mm -hmm. adds a unique kind of patina to the sort of soiled palette um, where even the temperature is hard to determine. Um, And there's a warm and cool kind of interplay, which is really interesting. But yeah, I mean, you know, we were still, New made to feel newly vulnerable by the Mm -hmm. arms race in Russia and their sort of lead in that credible frustration with the Truman administration, Mm -hmm. a a real need for a change in administration. Uh, Eisenhower had been elected, but there was a much longer time before he took office back then than there is today. So it was in that really in that interim that this story takes place. So there was a great deal of indeterminacy and insecurity and Mm -hmm. and, uh, vulnerability and that felt like a really poignant um gorgeous sort of terrain yes to watch these little unexpected roots or, or sprouts of a of a love emerge yeah. you know at this time so um yeah. and also with as as i mentioned last night but i think it's really worth Reiterating just how much, well, we starting with Saul Leiter's photography, which yes. remained influential to me since I sort of discovered him so recently, because everyone, like Ed Lockman, had known about Saul Leiter forever, of course. Of course, Mark right. Friedberg, my designer on Mildred, mm. um, but so many of the, pho- so much of the photography, in addition to Saul Leiter's beautiful work, which features windows and reflections and sort of filtering of images that you'll see in Carol. Um, there was also a great deal of beautiful color photography, and it's all uh, by women mm-hmm. photographers, photojournalists. Esther uh, Bubley, Ruth Orkin, yes. who was the partner of uh, Morris Engel, right? Who made who lollipops made and, little, and uh, fugitive, little Fugitive, which yeah. is maybe the best known docudrama. And there was one that they did together called Lovers and Lollipops. Right, Lovers and Lollipops. That's, that's it, yeah. more set in more set in locations that were relevant to. Carol. Yeah. So we just kept watching it over and mm-hmm. over. It was all shot in New York City. Mm-hmm. We you also great mentioned great, Helen Levitt.
2: Um, Helen oh, Levitt. Great artist.
3: Fantastic yeah. work. And and then Vivian Meyer, who has mm-hmm. been a more recent discovery, but whose work is amazing as well, and whose own the way she would sort of indiscriminately capture her own reflection in, in her work mm-hmm. as a, as a um, documentarian of, of cities and uh, related to the role. Therese mm-hmm plays in in the story she and carol in our version is a aspiring photojournalist in the novel she was an aspiring uh theater designer set designer
2: yeah it's it's interesting that you say this there's the seed of of love between the two of them and then that grows as you know uh and flowers as the film moves but then it strikes me that it's complemented by also the seed of a kind of a bohemian culture that you're catching mm. the edges of you know in the party mm. um it's 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 just kind of uh finding its way
3: yeah um, i mean we we all know that culture existed right thoroughly in fact it it almost always seemed to, to have existed sure, in of new york yeah there was the bohemia like yeah. in the you know I, I've read accounts like early mm. 19th century accounts of like, oh yeah, those crazy yeah, people right. in Greenwich Village, you know. And we always attribute it to the era right before we yeah, landed. That's, right. um, <laughs> that's <and> true. <laughs> but, uh, but I loved how in the, uh, the book, uh, Therese is, is a little m- more, entra- has a closer, there's a little more artistic aspirations yes. going on in both, her ambitions, and uh, her boyfriend, Richard's. And Phyllis Nage's first draft had already removed that, and mm-hmm. I really liked that. I just thought it made these characters less equipped for the love that they were about to, for the experiences they were about to encounter. And, um, and it just deepened this idea that, you know, I, what I loved about the novel is that it describes love so much from that kind of tunnel that you're in when you're first falling in love and you think no one's ever been there before you mm-hmm. and you're so impressed by the specificity of your desire finding its exact object in this person yeah. and <laughs> yeah this <laughs> is it oh my god <laughs> only i could ever <laughs> have found that trait, you know, those. Yeah. and your life is a minefield of signs yes. and things to be decoded. Mm-hmm. Every gesture, every phone call, every little pause in their breath means something mm-hmm. that's going to tell you whether you live or die, basically, you know, yeah. and that <laughs> is so gorgeously conveyed by Patricia Highsmith because it, it is like the criminal mind it's exactly like what the criminal mind does in all her other novels mm-hmm. which is <laughs> weaving these intricate webs of possibility yeah. uh, you know of w- how you will get caught or not how you'll av- avoid being mm-hmm. found out yeah. you know so that was just brilliant and I and, I, and so I think just making them l- less equipped for what they those experiences made it more all the more profound. Mm. Um,
2: uh, uh, Todd uh, introduced last night's screening, and he actually uh, dedicated it to Chantal Ackerman. And um, I guess I, 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 you know, I'd always um, imagined that Chantal's work was very important to you, and uh, I gather that you knew her, and and um, particularly in relation to Safe, I feel like there's a. Uh, there's an interesting relationship there, so I just sort of wanted to talk about that.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, it's still so so. I think the weight of her that loss is still um, being understood, mm. if it can be, and um, and and really the, the the maybe now the weight of of her amazing body of work and um, and and so much of it I haven't caught up. You know, there's plenty of her films I haven't seen. There's a, she made a lot of films over the years. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, everyone probably who knows her work and has seen Jean Dielman and, and what that first experience was watching that film, I don't know that my particular reaction is unique. But it was um, profound and really... Um, Uh, exhilarating and um, it's so inspiring you know for uh, you know as a filmmaker as a someone thinking about female subjects and how they're depicted and 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 how and what we come to expect um, you know is occupied on screen when we tell the story of women's lives and what is important and what is not important and uh, and I just remember, it was at, in college uh, that I was first exposed to her, and we watched Jean Dielman, and, and you know, it's a long film, but you, <coughs> and you see the running time on your syllabus, and you're like, oh God, okay, fuck. <laughs> and, uh, and then this you just, This is at Brown or at This is at Brown. And you just fall into the, um, you know, the incantation, the, the unbelievable uh, spell of observing labor, of observing work in the kitchen, of observing routines uh, that define her life. All the things that we've, you know, as people have said about the film many times, and there's been so much said about it, that is normally <clears throat> removed from movies. This is what the center of this film is, and the big events, because she she receives a, uh, has, you know, uh, sees uh, tricks, John's at the end of the day to supplement her income and as soon as the doorbell rings it cuts and we're back in the kitchen the next morning and watch the routines again and when (laughs) I'll just never forget when she's making the coffee and putting the same amount of cups in but you're you're slowly marking a um, uh, you know degradation a, 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 a unraveling of this life she puts one extra cup of water in the pot I think it is and everybody in the room went (gasps) and and just the sheer power of understatement and and negation of of action you know and how much we make those events meaningful you know and how much when they are just slammed at us in traditional films we're kind of numbed to to what those things convey and signify. Anyway, it just, it's, I don't feel like I, there's much to, that, that, that y- you have to just watch the film, I think, and that's the most. But certainly, when it came to SAFE, um, it was a seminal film I couldn't n- not think about. And, uh, and I was also interested in um, setting up different kinds of obstacles to the way we normally uh, identify with central characters in movies, and what uh, the viewer does uh, sort of uh, in recourse of that uh, the, the sort of way you the, the circuitous ways that you compensate and you and you fill in yourself um, how hungry we are to um, Participate in narrative experience and emotional experience, and so when there, are, so it's really interesting to set up those obstacles to pare down what we normally just throw out at at, at spectators in mm-hmm. films. And so with Carol, it was a it was this evacuation of a subject that was really the starting point for this person and her relationship, absolutely, as you also feel in John Dealman, but in a very different way to her environment and her domestic life and um, at times an almost oppressive um, uh, um, center position in the frame, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that somehow she does not feel like she owns, yes. that if anything she feels dwarfed and minimized by. Um, but uh, and, and again, as in Sean Dielman, a performance that, that you know, Astounds me still of Julianne Moore's in that film that, that um, made something absolutely um, Recognizable and flesh and blood on the other end of this these series of sort of interesting Conceptual questions about you know who this woman is
2: mm-hmm. I, uh, unlike John Dielman she's uh, um, The Carol in, in safe is uh, not in control of the environment she's pinned in the environment right. which is something that you're just aware of at every given moment and right. you know how to. It, it's as if you know she can she can't even uh she, she has no possibility of lateral movement in or out um, right. she's
3: she's utterly defined by the environment and then yeah. the environment becomes this culprit that yeah. contaminates her mm-hmm. and ultimately it it You know, destabilizes or undermines the question of an identity that already feels so conditional and sort of defined by the outside. Um, And, you know, it related to a lot of the sort of a long history of. uh, I I loved the very set, when I first heard about environmental illness. Right. And, Twentieth century disease. It was also the phrase was coined early on, and that it was only it seemed to only affect housewives in their domestic suburban lifestyle realms, and seemed to um, be caused by the chemicals in their products that they were surrounded by, and in the you know outgassing of the carpets and the upholstery in their homes, and. I just you know it just brought up a long and complicated history of women and illness, and um, pathologizing women and um, and around their bodies and around their their environments and how they are domesticated Mm -hmm. in in life, and the but the solution was removing them from these environments and putting sort of isolating them into these little these little encampments, yes. um, these places of safety, which, where where Julianne Moore ends up in, in safe. Um, but I was also really interested in the, the disease movie as a genre, right. and the way that it kind of reassigns identity. It kind of strips you of the identity you're supposed to have, the illness. It makes you completely and totally um, um, sort of have to question every marker of who you are. And then it reassigns you with a new sort of certitude that you are this cancer sufferer or you are this, you know, victim of, of um, environmental illness. And it was at, at this time in 1994 when I was thinking, or even earlier when I think I first started Writing Safe, that we were still in the throes of the AIDS epidemic and whole notions of, um, Cause and culpability around HIV were um, were in discussion, and um, and I think just a, a, you know a desire to make some sense of this virus that was you know frightening the hell out of the world, and how people get it and what their responsibility was in getting infected, mm-hmm. and and I found you know, that there was something really curious and um, and uh, uh, just kept coming up again, resilient, re- recurrent, about the desire to blame yourself mm-hmm. when you are outside of situations that you can control. Mm-hmm. And so culpability became a means for controlling an uncontrollable situation. Right. And that's why in this can so Louise Hay was a popular sort of you know, um, you know, New Age f- think writer who basically st- was telling people with HIV if you learned how to love yourself, you would overcome your AIDS. You know, and, and it and it gave people a sense of agency, and control over a situation. Mm-hmm but there was something heartbreaking about that but i also felt like there's something so human about that and so universal about that it's like the little kid who's like you know mom dad why are you getting a divorce is it because of me yeah you know we come to understand things by impl- implicating ourselves at the center of them
2: mm-hmm. um <coughs> it strikes me that if if one could say that there's a um a through line in your work it's it's you're always looking at stories in which the terrain of power and scenarios of, of blame and self recrimination um are are laid out and the characters are negotiating their way through them and looking for the the, the escape hatch. Um which I would imagine is is um what led you to uh has you know, has kept Rambo as a touchstone for you, Jeanne, and then um, led you to make the, a movie about Bob Dylan, somebody who worked to, you know, define himself um, and make himself.
3: Yes, um, I think <laughs> for both in, in sort of you know, um, with the assumption that like identity is this um, imposed. Uh, state right. that we are supposed to um, fulfill yeah.
2: in which invention supposedly plays no part exactly right? you and have to be authentic and, yeah. n-
3: and change plays no part or mutability or Instability, you know or even or artifice construction uh, There's we're supposed to find an authentic and organic self That is whole, you know, and we 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 um, Espouse those terms and, and elevate those those ideas and those values and so maybe in at least in of my feature films the first um, um, terrain where I was trying to like look at kind of radically um, different strategies um, practices around that was with the glam rock um Velvet coal Velvet Cold Cold mine, Cold mine. Yep. And how weirdly um, rebellious and and disquieting it, it, it that moment was—that sort of bisexual androgynous mm-hmm. uh, rally rallying cry in the early nineteen seventies that affected certainly the UK and a lot of some of Western Europe, but also America as well—and yeah. and was inspired by a lot of what was happening. As a sort of reaction to the '60s hippie ethics yes. ethos, um, that a lot of the Brits like David Bowie um, was inspired by in in The Stooges and and Brady
2: uh, known as glam rock years. Yes, yeah. exactly, in yeah. Vel-
3: Velvet Underground. Um, but that that notion of instabil- radical instability in terms of sexual orientation, sexual identity, um, you know, is still. Uncomfortable today in our in our very advanced state of progress around um, issues of um, acceptance around gay lesbian uh, bisexual transgender issues Because it's so much easier and so much more legislatively tidy to talk about sexual orientation as something that we're born into Mm -hmm. That's biologically determined and stable, mm-hmm. and then you can just say no. There's no question. There's no choice yep. involved. Mm-hmm. Choice is this, you know, or freedom discompany- to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. word. Election, like yeah. a desire to actually change it up. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And what so was so interesting about the glam moment was that it was also addressing the the inherent instability of adolescence because it's aimed at young people. Mm-hmm and how much they don't know who they are from day to day. Yep. And uh, that fantasy or that um, metaphor of, of uh, alien space, androgynous space creature who was a bisexual, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> yep. was so liberating and so radical, I mm-hmm. think, in so many ways. And, and, and continues to be today, interestingly, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. But Dylan was just another example in a very American, um, Version of somebody who was, um, refi- and I and I you know when I first got into Dylan in high school I don't know that I necessarily saw him that way as some as a as a shapeshifter. Yeah, it was sort of on at coming back to him later in my life and at a time I f- weirdly symptomatically maybe needed something from him again. Um, but right. I got in deeper.
2: Yeah, he was like an established you figure you and I are Mm. roughly the same age and so when he was exploding we were little kids exactly yeah
3: yeah. and and you know he always sort of connoted you know that um cocksurity and that kind of like yeah you know um which which is true I mean Mm -hmm. that part is is true that engine of sort of like defiance and stuff but it but how much it really was changing how much it was I mean we all I guess I never, you know, didn't necessarily identify the plugging in electric yeah. and, si- and seeing that on a similar um, continuum mm-hmm. or patterned creative act or something yeah. a- as the becoming Christian. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like when that happened, we were like, ooh, yeah. I'm just not going to think about that for a little yeah. while. Mm-hmm. That's just too weird. Um, uh-huh. But when you really look at, you know <laughs> the whole of it yeah it was real it's like no no this is this makes so much sense yes. and yeah. so anyway i just that that was a uh, but but yeah it was a a way of um it was a way of throwing up or throwing back at the social expectations of a kind of uh constancy um this person who was not going to do it the same way each time. Yeah. And even today when he tours, he does all the songs but you're like, "Oh, that was all on the watchtower." <laughs> yeah, know? I know. <laughs> it's it's <like> true. completely <laughs> redone in a way yeah. you're like, "Whoa, okay. Yeah. That's okay." Get into <laughs> that now, you know. Um <laughs> but 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 really to be uh, fundamentally, I think it's ultimately it's just that he's this, you know, intent a creative entity who, who has to sort of be making things to survive life, you know? Yeah. And that, but under the pressure of what he became at that time in, in, in New York, and, or wherever he was in, this, in the 60s in particular, the demand to keep fulfilling um, social expectations right. was too right. constraining. And he had to lash out against that. And there was a yeah. kind of hostility you know, kind of healthy, maybe, creative hostility in in that practice.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the moment in his autobiography when, uh, I I, I guess, Joan Baez or Robbie Robertson said to him, this is the moment when you're going to take it all the way home, you're going to take it to the top, you're the prophet, you know, or something like that. And he's like, okay, time for me to withdraw. Exactly. Yeah. Bad word, don't use that word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering if we would like to open it up for questions from anyone in the audience. Jim?
3: Oh, your beautiful Carol film. I want to ask two questions about it, Todd. Um, One is a technical one. Ed Lockman spoke a couple of days ago about the use of 16 and what that privileges the cinematographer and and I'd like you to talk about that from a
4: director's point of view and the relationship with the production design. The second question
3: has to do with sapphic desire, fifties sexuality, and privilege and how you play with those themes in that beautiful script that was written, how it's played. Uh, your first question it was it was how the uh, the use of sixteen privileged. Yes. No, no. How, what sixteen? Why you choose to shoot in sixteen, and what that and what that gives you that think, is not okay. available in digital, even right. though it's a digital. There's an aspect to it. Right. We finish digital in output. digital. Yeah. yeah, the output unfortunately mm-hmm. is digital. Although Ed and I went in on a print together. Ooh. So there's Where's that one print, Carol. <laughs> In an undisclosed location In a not <laughs> to yeah. be disclosed The location. Cheney compound yeah. uh, Exactly yeah. <laughs> Marco Rubio's all over <laughs> it um, uh, No, we, it was really, you know, it was when we were doing Mildred Pierce That I think it was just simply I mean, it was very much about the decade of the uh, Depression era The 1930s, that, that whole miniseries and uh, we knew it was gonna be tel- broadcast on, on, HBO, on TV. It was made, made as a long form dramatic thing. And uh, just having seen stuff shot on 35 and blown up to HDTV, it looks like digital because of the sophistication of lenses and, and stocks these days are so fast, so fine-grained that you just lose the grain uh, element so we that was really it was a it was like no, we want to see the grain and have it be a movie on you know everybody who did mildred um came from film, including Kate Winslet. she'd never done anything for t v before, so we were all you know proud of that you know, <laughs> that we didn't know anything about t v and uh <laughs> and wanted it to look like a movie and you know um and so we and so we did, and the results were really great and and um and it was fun to downgrade to a small 16 millimeter camera. I thought I thought that was kind of radical, you know. Um, and uh, but but the look was so meant meant so much. And I think some of the visual references, although we were looking at uh, this this sort of parallel moment that I was conjuring in the 70s. Um, new naturalism, American filmmaking of the 1970s. It was going back to traditional genre filmmaking, but imbuing it with a sense of freshness, a new kind of visual sensibility, a new kind of you know, actors and stuff, but still being very true to the forms and conventions of those generic traditions, the noir and the thriller and the horror film and all of those things. Um, and we wanted to bring and, and make making those films feel sort of socially relevant to the 70s uh, While still being sort of classical about about their love of these source, sources and that's what we kind of wanted to bring to Mildred um, And in this case, we, we really weren't looking at 70s films. We were looking more at stuff from the from the early 50s um, in the kids of carol love yeah. and the 50s and um, wow <laughs> <laughs> my mind is, the is the, sa- <laughs> right and <laughs> yes period. yes and, and, and power or privilege or class yes yeah yeah. yeah well you know uh this th- class class difference class plays a real role in in carol as it did in Mildred, actually um and, and really, so much of the tensions and the complexities have almost as much to do with the age difference and the class difference and the different power, uh, the status of power that Carol assumes over Therese in the story as the fact that they're two women or at least they all you know, combine to create a very specific dilemma for um, the subjects. And, um, but yeah, and, and a lot of it is about um, aspirations about becoming a woman, I think, and how, what, you know, because Carol represents femininity to Therese in very specific ways, that almost ways that you almost feel she hadn't fully um, confronted, um, and definitely hadn't confronted the, um, Incredible sort of sway and uh, over her um, until she saw Carol, um, but every the way every aspect of Carol's person is cataloged in the in the in the book is noteworthy and and made an impression and something we wanted to bring to the textures and the 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 feel and the surveying of of Carol's world, um, but in many ways Carol also is straitjacketed in that world and so obviously it's it's a world that she's she's done everything to fulfill and become this ideal sort of wife and and partner for Harge, her husband and it has not fulfilled her and there's a, something there's something really missing in, in that and something missing that even abby the character that Sarah Paulson plays, who has a prior history, a long history with Carol, we learn, hasn't been able to fulfill. And we, we um, uh, assume that we know that Abby comes from that class, that that uh, more privileged class that, that Carol enters. Um, and so it, there's something beyond it that Carol needs as well. But I did love, I have to say, I, I thought it was just fun to make a film about uh, women falling in love, and an older and younger woman, where the older woman is the object of desire, and the younger woman is is enthralled by the beauty and the allure of the older woman.
2: Um, I just want to say that while you um, you're talking, I just want to. Uh, it's it's easy to overlook the refinements and beauty of Cal Chandler's performance as Harge. He's spectacular. Yeah. I
3: yeah, the guy is so gifted. He's a great actor. I, he is such a, a great, great actor, movie. and he's made for the 50s, too. He yeah. looked so... As soon as he got into those clothes, it was like, oh, my God, come God. on. <laughs> yes. yeah. Awesome.
2: Harge. Yep.
3: Harge. Yeah.
2: yeah. I know that um, Douglas Sirk was not always regarded highly, um, particularly whenever his films were being released in the 50s. Um, and I think there had been sort of a bit of a critical reevaluation before Far From Heaven, um, but I'm just curious if there are any other filmmakers, either contemporary or a little bit older, who you think are due for a sort of similar um, re similar, um, reevaluation, either by critics or by filmmakers.
3: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, oh, God. I'm gonna think of it as soon as I leave here. I'm gonna be like, oh, that's <laughs> who I should have talked to. No one's coming to mind, and certainly no one of this, of I think of, the importance of of uh, cirque and melodrama, and the way melodrama in general has been denigrated, you know, as a as a genre alongside the all the other genres that are more often associated with male subjects. And but you know, there's something really um, uh, there's something you know, beautiful and fascinating and, and radical and go- gorgeously constructed about these Cirque films. But they also, and Fossbinder is the first person to talk about this, although he was so changed, radically changed and, and redirected when he first encountered the Cirque films in the early 70s, is that they they leave you with a, a sense of dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. There's some, because you're, you're watching, and Cirque will say this too, he's like, you can't make films about things. You can only make f- films with things, mm. with people, with light, with mirrors, with flowers. Basically, he's saying, I think, that you. all I can do is show you the conditions that we all live under. And then you, and I'm, and I'm not going to show your, you these characters figuring their way out of them or overcoming them. That's what you have to go home with. And that means, and Fossbinder talks about the way the camera is always observing. They're, uh, it's not about subjectivity. Mm-hmm. It's about the emotion you feel is due to, you know, montage and music. It's not due to uh, being uh, identification with the character. You're outside. You're watching Jane Wyman, watching, you know, Rock Hudson and and desiring him, but not being able to go there for all of these other things that you're watching. And so they don't stroke you, they don't um, um, solve problems for you. (laughs) And that makes them uh, maybe less, you know, purely satisfying.
2: Can I actually throw out a couple of? Technicolor melodramas of the same era that are also known, but maybe in need of a little bit more attention. the strangers when we meet, oh, which yeah. I'm sure you know, such a and beautiful.
3: I looked at that for um, Carol. Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. and 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 also these. After Delmer Daves had his heart attack on the Hanging Tree, he made these movies with Troy Donahue, mm. Susan Slade, and Parrish. And I don't, I don't know. Those. Of, oh, yeah. those are pretty cool movies. Okay, wow, awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Troy Donahue aside, yeah. right. <laughs> Yeah, let's mm-hmm. go to this side. Yeah. Wait for the microphone.
4: There's a lot of visual beauty in Carol and, you know, I thought big part of it was costumes and especially Therese, I thought, had a journey um, evolving into a more feminine look. So I was wondering if you could talk about how involved were you working with Sandy Powell Capturing those looks and what that meant for the characters.
3: Yes, um, it's a really it's uh, it's a deeper, more formative process for actors than people often kn- I think may may know. And maybe this is more true for period films too, where even the the girdles and the underpinnings and the stockings and the heels um, affect the way you move and the way your body feels you know, in space and the way, um, uh, what's po- the gestures that become possible uh, within, within those constraints. And so they, they help to inform the process of, of the, ac- the actor's process of finding the, the characters and the sort of material uh, specificity of their role. Um, and so they're intensely important to to um, the actor's work, and and they they speak about it way more, you know, um, articulately and beautifully than I, than I do. But I but I observe that, and I know, I mean, it, all that stuff matters a great deal to me, and I'm very interested in it. And the silhouettes that were available, the new look of the '50s versus the, I guess, more Chanel silhouette. You know, these were um, aesthetic choices and and choices of, of shape that that Sandy and I talked about a lot and that stuff that I I would be looking at from the outside um, and so they had a meaning and and uh, but but yeah that whole process and so it, it, it's really just a process where Sandy begins with actors it's you know also we we, use, we we didn't have a huge budget on Carol. Sandy would far prefer being able to afford to build most of the clothes in a film that the principals wear than we had money for and 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 but that just meant that we had to look at vintage clothes, and you start with vintage clothes anyway, which they try on for shape, we take a lot of pictures, we talk, we exchange ideas, the actors move around in them, and then we start to. Narrow down and then and then this case it was like okay which which are the really important clothes that carol wears that we have to make which are the vintage clothes that really work that we can make that carol can wear but definitely that therese could wear because she's still sort of finding herself and finding her identity through her um her look and her i think you know there's a reference in the film to the fact that she's a photographer, but she's uncomfortable taking pictures of people and Then she, she starts to take pictures of Carol And in a way the very act of being able and then you start to see that she can start taking pictures of people in general And I think in a way it's a way for her to start seeing herself in the world as a subject and how she looks and how she participates in life Um, So that's all part of it, you know, and and I think the clothes play a sort of foundational role in that process And then
2: shaping her own appearance changing her and then
3: exactly and then really growing up it's almost like hostile because when she no longer is available to Carol or so she thinks and it has to move on is when she most resembles her uh, yeah, my question is about the casting of the film. Uh, did you always have Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara in mind? And what qualities do those actresses possess that you thought made them perfect choices for the roles?
2: Kate Blanchett was attached to the film
3: before. Exactly. Kate was on before I was, um, so that was sort of a drag. Um, <laughs> But you know, as a director, you make do, and you you just work with what the material that you're given. Um, but um, <laughs> but I picked Rooney. <laughs> I'm so happy to say. And um, and uh, I I just I just had watched her like I'm sure most of you guys have, you know, in in all the in the films that she's done, and and. Um, and in such a you know, short amount of time she's distinguished herself um, so totally as such a serious and thoughtful and gifted um, actor. And, um, and really I think it's that I just think like when you see a young actor like that who knows who knows who somehow understands the scale of the medium of film. So well that she knows how to underplay, how to reduce mm. down and minimize the gesture mm. and have it almost have more impact through understatement. you know that to me is like mm. rare and and uh, speaks to real like intelligence and, and innate understanding that exceeds her years and her experience, and you see that in this performance i think maybe more than anything um she's done cuz it kind of asks for it more you know and um that was just a real yeah that that was you know of course they 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 i thought they would res- work well together but that's always sort of a you just hope that that is true and i think it and it ended up working yes. The
2: casting of the husband, which we were... Oh, yeah. uh,
3: yeah. Kyle, well, I, you know, he's, I know, I've, I haven't seen all of Friday Night Lights, but I've seen enough of them to just be so impressed by his, his work. Um, also, about Rooney and about Kyle is, I, I talked to people who'd worked with them and, um, you know, just heard of fantastic things, and that also helps the process of deciding... Um, but, but with, you know, uh, you, you have to cast a real, uh, without sounding sexist, a real man opposite Kate Blanchett. You need a, a guy who's grown up, you know, and a lot of actors just don't seem grown up no matter how old they get. They just seem like juveniles with gray hair or something. <laughs> and he is like, a, you know, he's like a, he seems like a grown up and um, he could hold his own with her. And um, yeah, that's not always easy.
2: There was actually a very funny moment last night during the the Q&A when someone asked you, how did you come to choose Kate Blanchett for the role of Caroline? You said, well, I I didn't. She was, um, she came uh, beforehand and she said, yeah, but how did you come to choose her? (laughs) (laughs) She just wouldn't, (laughs) yeah, it didn't didn't quite, yeah.
4: Did she choose you? Uh, I have a question, basically about movies. Uh, audiences come to movies, movie houses, to distance themselves from their problems, and rather engage in the problem of the plot, the characters, etc., that they see. Uh, was this movie Carol? Something about uh, like brief encounter uh, that you uh, based it on, or uh, is this something entirely uh, uh, different? Uh, uh, I, I I seem to think when you started talking about it, it sounded like brief encounter uh, in a in a railway station where they had a conversation mm. and somebody interrupted.
2: Yes. Mm. This is, it seems to me that this is a question that relates directly to melodrama um, and, and, and involvement with the uh, characters. Right, yeah.
4: the people themselves uh, probably had their own problems, health-wise, uh, etc., uh, or their uh, their relationship with their uh, husbands, uh, which in uh, w- had an influence in their r- uh, relationship with somebody they just met. And uh, this was what I thought was uh, the plot that you were talking about.
3: Well, Brief Encounter was an influence in how um, I, I, I worked with Phyllis the writer. We did some structural changes to the, to the shape. Of the story, the narrative, but really, the what was similar about the two uh, for me is they're, they're they're really just about yeah they're they're about um, they're very simple stories really they're really about love um, cropping up unexpectedly in life almost as a as a uh, problem uh, almost as a uh, uh, something you don't ask for a conflict that, that in other words yeah. Exactly, that messes everything up and makes you have to rethink everything when you didn't think you were really up for that.
4: And it affects all the members of the family. If yeah, exactly.
3: Uh, yes.
2: So we'll do one more. Yeah, right over here.
3: How did you decide
4: to do the film about this topic? And uh, before doing it, how did you
1: think it would be unique from other films about this topic?
3: Um. I'm i not sure I was necessarily driven by trying to make it um, unique, it, or, or at least um, except for the issues and the setting and the fact that it was about uh, love between two women, which I'd never explored in my films before. It was really a t- tribute to the lesbian people in my life my dear friends who are seminal in my life and um who are like you never read the price of salt <laughs> and i'm like no um and uh <laughs> but but i um because i think you know i i i think that's what happened with brookback mountain when it came out it's like Love stories always need um, um, obstacles between the lovers, things that keep the lovers apart. Um, And increasingly, as we move forward in life progressively, at least maybe more so in the West than other parts of the world, that becomes harder and harder to imagine why two people couldn't get together. And that's what made, I think, Brokeback Mountain imbued the genre with a fresh... Uh, sense of um, you know just like wow this really works uh, as a love story because it's in the most unexpected place and the most unexpected kind of love and I think Carol has that in it I think that's part of uh, what made it unique but I but I also felt like I I I you know I like learning from things that have uh, uh, that 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 are out there that have been done before beautifully and see what I can how I can grow as a filmmaker and be informed and learn more about different kinds of um, genres and and ways that audiences connect and understand themselves in what they see, you know, in movies, and uh, and I just felt I hadn't really done that before, so I was looking at a lot of other films that I thought, you know, or maybe do it way better than Carol, but that inspired me, you know, so I that always is the, my process.
1: Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.